There are uh, some books in life that you can generally read the first, pa the first chapter and put it down. Um, usually um, usually uh, self-help books are excellent for that, by the way. You don't have to read the whole book. You just read the first chapter. Usually the author's preface, you get all the major ideas, and the rest is barely commentary for that matter. But lots of books you can read, chapter or two, maybe the last chapter, you get a wide sense of what the author is trying to say, and, and actually, bluntly speaking, a lot, of, a lot of academics feel the pressure to write books, and their ideas are not big enough or sufficient enough to really create 300 pages of interesting things over and over again. They stretch and inflate things over the course of things. On the other hand, there are books. You should read the beginning, the middle, and the end. Otherwise, you won't properly understand the message of the beginning, the middle, and the end. You know I'm going to say what book that is in particular, that being the Torah. And I want to prove the point to you, actually. There's a tiny verse that on the surface would seem to be, along with the list of other things surrounding it, that would strike you, and it does me, by the way, at first glance, as completely superfluous. But I want to challenge the idea. And what I'm going to ask you to do, you'll forgive me, of course, is for you to open up your chumash. You're going to open up to page 132. Page 132. At the top of page 132, as you'll see, is that there is an exhaustive list of, line of, um, of lineage, genealogy. And not only is it uh, genealogy, lineage, but it is the lineage, the genealogy of Esav, who is Jacob's brother. No explanation needed. I know we all have some grasp of who that is. He's the counterpart, reckoned in rabbinic literature as being the antithesis of Jacob. And so the ancient rabbis asked the question, and they asked the question on a generational level too, by the way. There's not just one question posed. In the Midrash, in the Talmud, also, in later rabbinic commentaries, they all ask what really is an obvious question. Why in the Torah is there a lineage, a genealogy for Esau, for Esau? I mean, after all, the Jewish people do not consider their history to be connected to Esau in any way. This morning in the Torah portion, we read of the foundational elements of the Jewish people being put into place, not the least of which is that Yaakov, Jacob, is no longer Jacob. He is Israel. And calling him Israel, it is clear as God speaks to Jacob that this will be the name of his people coming out. And ever since we've been known as the children of so then the question, once again, reveals itself. Why does the Torah take space in providing a genealogy surrounding Esau? And in and amongst answers that come their way, I'm going to draw your attention to verse 12. On verse 12, we read the following. V'timna ha'ita pilegesh le'elifaz ben Esav, this woman named Timna, was a Pilegesh, she was a concubine to Eliphaz, who was the son of Esav. In other words, she was loosely the daughter-in-law of Esau. And it goes on to say, Vateled la Eliphaz, 
and she gave birth to Eliphaz, a son named Amalek. Who's Amalek? What does Amalek do when the Israelites leave Egypt? Right, they attack the Israelites. As soon as the Israelites leave Egypt, they attack the Israelites. And as Warren rightly points out, there's a rabbinic legend that states that the Amalekites attacked the rear of the caravan of the Israelites because who always travels in the rear of the caravan? It's the weakest of the group, the stragglers behind. Who are the weakest of the group? It is the women, the children, the elderly, the sick. The Amalekites attacked the back of the caravan of the Israelites, and this was considered to be an historical, eternal, dastardly thing to do. Not the least of which was being that the Israelites, fresh from deliverance by the hand of God out of Egypt, you think that there might be some reticence of people to attack them. And yet, the Amalekites did. As a result of that, we know later on in the course of our celebrations that one of the great Jewish holidays is built entirely upon the idea of the return of the Amalekites. And what holiday is that? It's Purim. Haman, Haman, we are told, was an Amalekite. He was a descendant of the Amalekites. And his desire to destroy the Jews was this kind of genetic wiring, this primordial kind of DNA that was wired in him for eternity to seek out and destroy and kill the Jews. And as a result, at the, uh, that the stereotype that we use over and over again, that when we see a great anti-Semite, we say he's an Amalekite. There's old, old ideas, not that old, but certainly from a few generations ago, looking to suggest that uh, Hitler, Yamach Shemo, and Nazis were the reincarnation of the Amalekites. There's other weird historical things that occurred at the trial of Nuremberg, where one of the, uh, where one of the hierarchy, I forget his name, well, one of the hierarchy of the SS, as he was taken out to the gallows, screamed out the names, or not the particular names, but he said the ten sons of Haman. In any event, this idea of the reverberation of the Amalekites and the deep-seated loathing and venom towards the Jews is well-established in biblical literature. This is the book of Genesis. In the book of Exodus, we read of the attack of the Amalekites on the Jews. So much so that in the book of Deuteronomy, we are told that there is a mitzvah, there is a commandment. Zachor tiskor, you must remember what Amalek did for you, did to you when you left Egypt, and you should erase their name from the face of the earth. So the ancient rabbis asked the question, why is this genealogy in the Torah? And they, still, they tell a story about Timna, this woman who becomes the concubine of Eliphaz, who's the son of Esau, who gives birth to a child named Amalek. They say as follows, that she was a great devotee of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She came from a, pre, a princely family, one of the kings of the Canaanite tribes. 
and she desperately wanted to convert and become part of the Jewish nation. They believed that she was too princely, too royal, that she wouldn't give herself over to, to being Jewish in service to the collective. And as a result, what happens is, is that she goes and marries this person, Eliphaz, who's a cousin, obviously, on the other side. The Talmud goes so far as to say that the reason why Amalek was created was because we didn't convert her. Jews generally see the world in one of two ways. And I can say this confidently because I'm a Jew and I spend a lot of time around Jews. We either consider ourselves to be frightened and scared to protect who and what we are, that we close off the world. Or on the other hand, we consider ourselves so filled with gifts and beauty that we want to share everything with the world. And over the course of time in history, the sway between those two polar opposites are uneven and uneasy. And they are best often seen in the reactions as to how people treat and address non-Jews and converts. And so I want to share, obviously, over the past few weeks, there has been lots of rumblings, and this is not going to be a, a political kind of thing. It's just about some news. Um, with the emergent Israeli government, that there's going to be changes to Chok HaShvut, to the law of return. Uh, we have gotten messages from the Israeli consulate and the Israeli ambassador, I know not just in Toronto, but elsewhere throughout the world, about potential changes that will occur uh, to rabbis who write Jewish identity letters for people who wish to make Aliyah to Israel today. If someone want, wants to make Aliyah to Israel, they need a letter from a rabbi of any denomination, but a letter from a rabbi attesting to the fact that the person is Jewish. And some of those regulations potentially may be changed. So I want to tell two stories to you. One story involves, once again, straight from the news, is that the immediate, well, not the immediate, the immediate, immediate, uh, past Prime Minister of Israel was a man named Naftali Bennett. I'm sure you're familiar. Naftali Bennett's uh, parents were Americans. And uh, after the uh, 67 war, they made Aliyah to Israel. Uh, they went to go work for the Technion. They went back to North America, but this, way, but this time to Montreal. And in Montreal, they became quite, quite observant. They went back to Israel, where they ended up staying and living. And the story of Naftali Bennett, who became a... Um, he, he was involved in startups in Israel and unicorn development and technology. And uh, he, he, he was uh, in a very high level in the army. During the course of his uh, prime ministership, people, some people were accusing that his mother wasn't Jewish. And uh, this was part of a slandering machine that churned against him. And uh, so much so that last week he won a court case um, getting damages from certain people who had spread these lies on the internet. And he wrote just before Shabbat, he posted on his Facebook page, you should go to it, and I believe that there's a translation feature. If not, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it says, uh, where he wrote an open letter of apology to his mother and father who are no longer alive. 
And amongst the heartbreaking things that I've read in my life, that was a sad thing to read, where he openly expressed the pain that he felt on behalf of his mother and father. Not that they were, not that she was called a convert, which she wasn't, by the way, because I had met her personally myself. She was not. But the fact that people would suggest that because someone had converted that it was something less. And that what it is when someone says that I am a Jew and I am part of the people of the Jewish people, Naftali Bennett wrote, that should be enough. The second story I want to tell you comes by way of a story from the late German rabbi, Joachim Prinz. Prinz was born in Berlin, and he was a, um, he was a firebrand who resisted the Nazis until he left Germany in 1938. He settled himself in New Jersey, and in his autobiography, he tells the following story. He says that in the early 1950s, he received a phone call on a Thursday, and he was told that, they, that these people were calling on behalf of the Prime Minister of the State of Israel. Would he come to Kennedy Airport Friday morning? They didn't tell him why. They didn't tell him where he was going. But when you get a phone call like that, and bear in mind, there weren't cell phones back then, so they really had to work hard to track you down. He said yes. Car picks him up in New Jersey, drives him to Kennedy Airport. He goes on a plane that later on he finds out is bringing him to London. Late, early Friday afternoon, they arrive in a hotel. They bring him into a room, and there's a young woman sitting in a chair. One of the agents who was there says to him that this woman, her name is Mary, was a longtime girlfriend of David Ben-Gurion's son, Amos. Amos had been wounded in the uh, 48 war. She had, was a Scottish Catholic nurse who had cared for him. They had fallen madly in love, and Amos wanted to marry her. So what's the problem? The problem is for David Ben-Gurion, who wasn't a religious man, nonetheless, he was the prime minister of the state of Israel. It would not look very good if his son ended up marrying someone who wasn't Jewish. So they turn to Rabbi Prince and they say, we have to have her back in Israel by Monday afternoon. Would you convert her? So Rabbi Prince looks at her and he looks at them. He looks at his watch. He says, we can do this. They spent that entire Shabbat, that entire Saturday night, studying and learning. Sunday afternoon late, they brought her to the mikvah, and then she was flown back to Israel. Prince goes on to say that over the course of him being a rabbi, he did hundreds if not thousands of conversions. And he said a part of him was always a little hesitant about what he did when he thought back to London. But years later, he had met Paula Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion's wife, and she told him that Mary was the only Jew in the family. She lit Shabbat candles every Friday night. She ate kosher. She observed the holidays by the tradition, not just as a cultural thing, but as a traditional thing. And Prince concluded the story by saying that of the hundreds, if not thousands, of conversions I did in my life, that was my greatest. What I mean to say to you is that I believe that the story of Timna is reminding us that in the two balances between being afraid of losing what we have as opposed to giving what we have, I think the Jews should be courageous enough to believe 
that we should err on the side of giving everything that we have. Shabbat Shalom.